Joseph Panetta is president and CEO of Biocom, the California association that advocates for 1,200 companies, service sector firms, universities, and research institutes working in the biotechnology sector. As president and CEO since 1999, Mr. Panetta leads programs in capital formation, public policy, workforce education, and member-to-member services. He is a co-founder of the Biocom Political Action Committee, the Biocom Institute for Education and Workforce Development, and the California Biotechnology Foundation, a joint initiative to inform legislators and the media about the life science industry in the state of which he is chairman. Joe, it's great to meet you, sir. Dwayne, thank you. It's uh, great to have you here. It's a pleasure to meet you, too, and I've been looking forward to our conversation today. Well, I tell you, um, we're here in San Diego in your office. It's about uh, 92 degrees Fahrenheit, 32 <laughs> Celsius, and it's snowing at home, and it's lovely to be back in California, Joe. <laughs> we're, we're glad to have you, and, you know, um, as beautiful as California is, um, we've got a lot of issues to deal with out here, and um, we want to make it more attractive to business and to, and to people who want to be here in California, and that's kind of uh, a big part of why we're in business here at Biocom. And why we're having this conversation today, frankly. So you became president and CEO of Biocom, kicked it off in 1999. How has the California life sciences industry and the sector changed in biotechnology since you kicked it off? Well, first of all, it's changed tremendously. And, and I have to say that I actually started in the life science industry in California in 1989. So I, I came out here 10 years before I joined Biocom, and I came out to join one of the first biotech companies in San Diego and in, and in California. So I got a taste of what biotech was like back in the 80s when it, when it got off the ground here. I don't think a whole heck of a lot changed in the 10 years before I came to Biocom, except for the fact that we had a, a couple of successes in, mm-hmm. in new technologies, significant successes. Uh, by the time that I came here, I think the first monoclonal antibody drug for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma had be, been approved. That was de- developed by what was then IDEC Pharmaceuticals here in San Diego. And uh, the first treatment for HIV AIDS uh, was, was developed here as well. We at Mycogen Corporation, my company, had commercialized some of the first genetically modified seeds uh, to be insect resistant and and had put those on the market. But it was, in 1999, it was still an industry that was in its infancy and with very rudimentary tools Mm -hmm. to use to develop new products. I mean, we were were doing gels back then. Genomics uh, was a term that we weren't even really using yet. The The human genome hadn't been sequenced Illumina, uh, I think, had just been founded, but they basically were, were a microarray tray company right. back then. So what's changed? So I, I think, obviously, the industry's grown significantly in terms of the number of people who work in California, the, the largest collection of biotech clusters and the overall the largest number of people in the world working in biotech, uh, over 300,000. Speaking of companies, you know, we're well above 10,000 in little companies and, and, and large companies. And so innovation has just exploded here. What we used to be able to raise in venture capital has tripled, quadrupled. And I think what's changed to make that happen is the combination of the development of more innovative tools. Uh, and I mentioned Illumina. Um, we, we had uh, Life Technologies here as well. So many of the the toolbox platform technology companies that were founded back then have grown up to fuel the ability of the California life science industry to do its work more efficiently and more effectively. 
what's contributed, I think, also to the, the boom is that if you go back to when Hybertech was founded here in San Diego in 1978, uh, and Genentech was founded about the same time. Right. Uh, Mgen came along more like around 1985 or so in Thousand Oaks, Los Angeles. You have still a relatively young group of people, many people who got started back then in their 60s, and that's still very, very young uh, in terms of people still engaged in business, who have had tremendous depth and breadth of management experience and entrepreneurial experience. And that's combined been able to, to give us three things. A, they've, they've got an incredible ability to go out and raise money. B, they're still running companies and they've got that depth of experience to be put to work to more effectively put together a team and run a company. And C, they've trained so many people who have gone on to found companies themselves. So we've got this bench of serial entrepreneurs. The other thing that's changed significantly is that when I came here in 1999, there was very little interface between pharma and biotech. Right. In fact, I can remember going to a conference I used to go to in, in London each year where biotech folks from all over the country came together and from the world and went there. And the pharma companies came there. And I remember listening to presentations for several years by pharma companies where their licensing and biz dev reps would get up and say, basically say to the people in the audience, we know you're excited about working with us, but we pretty much know what we need. We pretty much know (laughs) what works and what doesn't work. And we pretty much know what you're doing. So if we're interested, we'll give you a call. Yeah. What began to happen? I mean, all of a sudden, they began to realize that maybe their pipelines weren't as full as they thought they were, and maybe they were going to need to depend upon something on the outside. So what's happened is they've come to California. In 1999, we had very little big pharma presence here in California. Obviously, we've grown some big biotechs, Amgen, Genentech. What Gilead. Was, Gilead. What was IDEC that merged with Biogen and, and, and left Vertex is not founded here, but Vertex has, a, has an enormous presence here. And, and I, could, I could go on Biomarin. Sure. We've been able to do a good job of growing the midsize to large-size biotechs with the talent base we've had and with the investment that's gone on. And the, the last thing I'll add is that in 1999, we were in no way a global industry here in California. We hadn't really extended our reach out beyond the United States, uh, maybe to Europe a little bit. But today, um, the interface, and we see this especially at, here at Biocom, the interface between California and the rest of the world, particularly because we're close to the Pacific Rim, has become significant. China, Japan, we've got an office in Tokyo and 50 members in Japan, and they do a lot of back and forth licensing and establishment of presence here. Well, I want to touch on one of the things you were discussing, and that is this idea that biotech and pharma used to be separate, and now they really aren't. In many ways, the biotech pipelines and the innovation has now been subsumed and is now part of the pharma strategy. So essentially, one of the big changes in the industry, as you mentioned, it's not like internal R&D that it used to be closed innovation, what Henry Chesborough at Berkeley would call closed innovation. It's now open innovation, and you're signing partnerships, and you're doing agreements, and you're doing licensing deals. And obviously, California really leads the world in that and technically does a very good job. How do you think that that evolution occurred? I mean, you were there from when all these things started happening, where this this whole development approach changed. That's that's a very intriguing story as I I think about it. I used to use a a chart back in the early 2000s to show when pharma got engaged in biotech. Of course, today, 
we and our friends at Pharma refer to this as the biopharmaceutical industry. Yeah, it's right? one. It's considered one vertical sector, essentially. Right? But I can remember when I would go out and talk to people and give presentations about this interface, and I would say, now look, here's the way it works. Biotech companies develop the early stage products. They go out, they get the venture capital. They take products through preclinical into phase one, into phase two. And then it's the pharma companies who have the regulatory expertise and the marketing expertise and the sales expertise and the manufacturing expertise. And they come along in late phase two of FDA product development. And then then they'll be interested in working with you. And they'll take it the rest of the way. You're good at the beginning. They're good at the end of this. And, And that was the way it began early on. What began to happen? Well, first of all, there was more innovation going on. Secondly, it became a much more competitive climate for pharma companies versus each other to acquire new technologies. Right. And so they began to dip down earlier and earlier into the pipeline. Uh, I mean, we had companies here in San Diego that have gotten acquired for over a billion dollars that were in phase one of, of development. And then what began to happen? Then they, then they began to say, well, if we're here in San Diego or in San Francisco or Los Angeles, we can actually acquire some pretty darn good talent to put together a team ourselves sure. to be able to do this. And, that's, and that began to happen. And now, you know, look, we've got Celgene here in San Diego, which was a result of the acquisition of Signal Pharmaceuticals 15 years ago. Celgene now merging with Bristol-Myers Squibb. And they're going to keep their facility here, and they're going to basically keep it as a biotech research facility. Next door is Eli Lilly. I've got to put a plug in for Eli Lilly because we wouldn't have a biotech industry here if it wasn't for Eli Lilly. They were the first investors in Hybertech way, way, way back. They've had a presence here since way back then through that acquisition. But now what's Eli Lilly doing? They're putting together a pipeline of incredibly sophisticated robotics over there run by scientists to do biotech research. So it's been an evolution over time, but they're fully bought in. Right. You know? And they're, fortunately, there's a, there's a great partnership between the true early biotech industry and, and the pharma industry here. And, and if you look at where the pharma facilities are in California, they're plopped down right in the middle of each of the biotech clusters. They're not on the outskirts or 20 miles away. No. I mean, you have a hub here. You have a hub in basically sort of Santa Monica, Los Angeles, around Cedar sinai Then you got the one in South right. San Francisco, basically. Absolutely. The three big hubs. Do you think there's any difference in sort of flavor between the three hubs and approaches? Well, I, th- I think to understand California, you have to understand that California has basically three separate cultures, <laughs> you know, north central and south it's kind of subjective where you draw those lines but you know the the bay area obviously got its start in biotech first and the bay area also has had um, more success as a global center as a banking center and it's attracted i think some of the more experienced talent and it's got a little bit of an edginess to it in terms of its know how to do it kind of an, an attitude which is fine because that attracts more talent and attracts investment capital. San Diego has always really been more than anything else about picking ourselves up down here by our bootstraps and finding a way that we can get it done by working together. And I think that's also a cultural thing. 
that has come over basically 150 years of being in a place that has a desert on one side, (laughs) a foreign country south, the ocean on the west coast, and then a gap between here and Los Angeles. So this has become a place where people really focus on working together more than anything else to to get things uh, done. And they get together easily because it's not a challenge geographically. It's not a challenge from a transportation standpoint. So that's the kind of culture we've got here. And in Los Angeles, it's very interesting. It's still an early stage kind of a, a biotech cluster up there. But I think that the thing that Los Angeles has going for it, again, is the fact that that it's a powerhouse of universities and research hospitals. UCLA, USC, Cedars-Sinai, you know, on and on and on. Absolutely. Right. Caltech. Yeah. And so the challenge in Los Angeles has always been that it doesn't have the deep-seated talent to keep companies progressing. It doesn't have the venture capital base. And so what's happened in Los Angeles is that good innovative technologies have been developed there, but the venture capital folks move those companies to San Francisco or San Diego. Sure. So it's been a breeder then, essentially, an incubator. It's been an incubator, yeah. As you know, we've been doing a lot of research. Biocom's been certainly part of that. We've been looking at a lot of the Medicare proposals coming out of the U.S. Congress, H.R. 3. We'll get into the bad news around that as we go (laughs) forward. But I'd like to touch on a couple things that we found out when we were investigating California specifically. If you look at the industry as a whole, particularly early-stage biotech, mid-stage biotech, eight out of every hundred... 10 out of every 100, give or take, depending on your therapeutic area. If it's oncology, it's close to 5 out of every 100. We'll we'll make it to market. If we look at the partners we mentioned earlier, there's this partnership behavior, this partnership uh, development funding that comes from Big Pharma now and works with biotech. And, you know, you develop partnerships and intellectual property early on and you try and work collaboratively to bring it to market. If you look at that behavior over 10 years in the companies that are going to be impacted by Medicare reform, If you look at their investment behavior, they invested in 109 assets in California over the last 10 years. Out of those 109 assets, 33 came to market. That's a 30% hit rate. Mm -hmm. That is three times the global average. That's a staggering statistic, Joe. That's just staggering to me. What is it that creates this success? First of all, it's amazing. Um, You know, I want to give credit to Pharma to begin with because I think they've got great people. And we, you know, we do an annual conference, a global pharma biotech partnering conference here in San Diego. We've done it for 10 years. All of the heads of licensing come to this conference from all of the big pharma companies. They come here because they want to be in an intimate environment. We don't invite more than 350 people. They want to be with their peers and they want to be talking to the people who are starting and running companies that are developing the most innovative technologies. Now, I'd love for Biocom to take credit for those 33 out of 100 because of our investor conference, but it's just one example of the kinds of things that happen here in California. And there's, there isn't, I know there isn't a conference like this in Massachusetts, for example. We're great friends with the people in Massachusetts. <laughs> of course. But, but we've got a healthy rivalry going, too. There's a lot to be said for experience experience in having tried and failed and learned from that failure, experience in putting together good teams of people, great teams of people to work together, and the ability to take advantage of this wealth of tools that we that we have. And then finally, the fact that we have many, many people here in California 
who are engaged in basic research that do a very good job of technology transfer. Uh, Stanford is up there at the top yeah. in terms of its ability to do technology transfer. It's a combination of, of factors that, when you bring them all together, create this critical mass of ability to predict more success in a way, right? Or create more opportunity for success. I think that has a lot to do with it. But it also requires money and a lot of money. And what we see is a depth of liquidity here that is, you know, three times what we see in other states. I mean, there was $140 billion of investment into those assets over the 10 years, where the next largest state, Massachusetts, was $59 billion. Yeah, we, we see here in California each year, you know, it's probably up around 4 to $5 billion in investment. And the interesting thing about it is it doesn't all come from Sand Hill Road up, no. up in the Bay Area either. So I think that's, to your point, that goes to the ability of companies here to be able to go outside of California and raise money, raise money in Boston sure, and, and in other places as well. Well, and Europe too. I mean, the European firms yeah. that aren't, you know, the Roches, the Novartises, they're setting up their venture firms as well, and they're working here and, and doing early stage investment too. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, they're not putting that investment in Europe. They're putting it here in the, in the U.S. Well, there's a very interesting study that was done, which I'll happily share with people in the podcast when we put this out where they looked at the European market right now. And what the statistical analysis showed was the more you rely on the European market, the more exposure you have to European regulation, the less productivity you get out of your R&D portfolio. Yep. And so there's sort of a tipping point in the statistics where if one-third of your revenue is coming from Europe, you are at a huge disadvantage from a productivity standpoint. And we're seeing this where assets are moving from Europe to the United States. Yep, absolutely. We saw it with pharma years ago when... You know, if you, if you took a look at the top 10 pharma companies and where they were investing and where their drugs were being developed, it used to be at least 50% in Europe, but it's moved to 75, 80%, at least here in the U.S. now. Yeah, there's a very famous Harvard study that looked at the evolution of that at a macro level where, you know, now it's the U.S. that's, you know, 50, 60% yep. of, the, of the global market. One of the other interesting things about this high productivity rate that you have in California, this high hit rate, as well as the available disposable liquidity, what this translates into, if you develop a probability model on the ability to come to market, it's a, if you do a logistic regression, which is just basically spreading the probability based on the investment and the success, the amount of investment where you have success in California, where it's 50-50, so basically where you have the coin flip when you build this regression, when you see an $800 million investment in California, you've got about a 50-50 shot of coming to market. Now, if we compare that to the rest of the United States, all 331 investments that were made in assets over the last 10 years, it's $4 billion mm -hmm. before you hit that 50-50 mark. Again, you combine these statistical outliers yes. and you actually see it in the actual structural data. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a sociologist, but I did get an A in sociology in college. <laughs> And, uh, and I've been here for, for, for 30 years. And you've played one on television. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, I, you know, and, I, and I came from the East Coast where I worked in a Fortune 100 chemical company in, in Philadelphia. And, and, uh, and I left that company because of the fact that I learned through conversations I had with people in the early stage biotech industry here. They wanted people who wanted to be a part of not being afraid to take a risk. You're not going to know if you're going to succeed at something if you don't want to give it a try. Sure. Right? You've got to give it a try. And you, and you might fail, but, you know, if you don't give it a try, you, you won't succeed. Well, that was Buddha's path to enlightenment. <laughs> of course, there were a lot fewer things. I wonder if you would get through Jehovah's Witness now these yeah, days. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
I've lived in other parts of the country. I've worked in other parts of the country. I, I, I think they're wonderful people and wonderful companies in other parts of the country. But I see at least in this biotech industry in California that people came here and have come here for years with the idea that they want to try something new and different and they're they're not afraid to fail at it. And I don't I don't think I'm unique. My wife and I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and I had a perfectly good job in Philadelphia <laughs> when we came out here to work for a company that had $18 million in the bank with the promise that we were going to change the world of agriculture by eliminating a lot of chemical insecticides and genetically engineering crops to be resistant to insects, and we were going to, we were going to go up against Monsanto. I look back at that now, and I think, was I crazy to, to, to do that? I, I couldn't have been that crazy because people have continued to do it for 30 years sure. out here. Um, and, and so I think whether you're talking about San Diego or, or the other clusters, I, I think generally speaking, there's a culture out here that has attracted and bred an acceptance of, of taking risks. And it's also accepted failure and given people another chance if they've learned from that failure. And I think that contributes in large part to the kinds of successes you're talking about because a lot of those products are revolutionary, totally health-changing kinds of products. You know, Savosavir. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hepatitis C. Yeah. And what I think people forget is, okay, we everyone looks at Savosavir, Savaldi, for those folks who would know the, the brand name, but they forget there's there was Topopavir, there was about four or five others that people invested right. in as well, and they're all gone. Yep. Basically, the science breaks into an area, and then you have a lot of scientific envelope pushing in these asset classes, and then everyone's trying to go in, and then you can follow the science, you can follow the investments, basically you can see the activity and the investment behavior, and then the clinical trial behavior, but Occasionally, what happens is one or two of the drugs are so far superior to the other ones that even if you have a good drug, and I think any one of those other drugs was actually quite good, but it was just not a cure 99% of the time. No, and I don't think um, investors have, have shied away from putting money into the products that will take us to the next level, regardless of you know the success rate of the products that are out there. And, we're, and I think we continue to see that. I mean, look at the investment that's being made out here in regenerative medicine. Yeah. I serve on the board of the, of the, the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Medicine, and I spend a lot of my time with the committee that I'm on reviewing grant applications and making decisions on funding grants to study products to treat, in a lot of cases, uh, neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. I truly believe that between the work we're doing at CIRM through the grants that we've given research institutes and through the work that some of the pharma companies are, are, are putting into this, that we'll develop the therapies and the treatments here in California. Nobody else is putting that level of investment and research into those products that we are out here in California. And that gets to the point that we should probably touch on here about Medicare Part D and some of the international reference pricing proposals that are coming out now in Washington, D.C., if we look at the biotech ecosystem as we're talking about it, we're seeing that there's a certain amount of venture funding that's coming from big pharma, $300 billion and $600 billion over a 10-year period came into the U.S. biotech ecosystem in partnerships and venture funding. And we also know that it takes a certain amount of money just to know if your asset is investable, right. roughly between $800 million and a billion, give or take, depending on your asset class, and that even if you spend that money, you might fail, and many do, right. and that's a constant, that's a fixed cost. 
And we also know that, except from California, the rest of the world, the failure rates, you know, eight out of 100 is the success rate. So it's a, you know, 90% failure rate. So that's also a constant as well. California's is seven out of 10, at least according to our data, fine. But, you know, there's a high rate of failure. If all those are constants, what we're looking at in the current proposals, the international reference pricing proposals to drive down U.S. medicine prices, again, a noble goal, a laudable goal, and a completely understandable point if the U.S. taxpayer is paying the majority and subsidizing the majority of the drug right, price globally. Right. Completely understand that. But the impact of this is that there's going to be $72 billion a year taken out of the liquidity that's going to be available primarily for investable assets, market partnerships, development, <laughs> venture capital, right. et cetera. That, that money goes away. It's 58% of the revenue of the companies, annual revenue of the companies in Medicare Part D, right. which is, I mean, what would happen to the venture capital community we've been, this very successful venture capital community we've been talking about if we lose access to 60% of the revenue? Well, as we discussed at the beginning of our conversation, venture capital firms have a success rate of about 1 in 10 or yeah. 10 out of 100, right? The First of all, to be able to recoup that investment, you have to have the hundreds of companies for them to be able to invest in. To have those companies, you, you've got to have the venture capital to put into those early stage companies. And a lot of that money comes from big pharma, you know, again, I mean, it's a tremendously risky business that we're involved in. And so there are other things that pharma companies can invest in that, you know, can treat everyday kinds of things that they can make a profit on, right? So why invest in something that is going to, first of all, have a low rate of success, but what's always been the reward for risk? It's been the benefit of being able to recoup your investment. I don't understand what part of this our elected officials don't want to to understand. You know, this industry that consists of people who go to work every day, not because they want to make money so much as because they want to change the world and help people to be healthy, in going to work every day, to be able to trade a product that is, a, for example, you know, a, a short-term treatment to cure hepatitis or potentially to allow people to no longer degenerate into a situation where they don't know who their friends and children and wives and husbands are anymore or who can, you know, no longer move their, their limbs. I mean, you know, we're doing revolutionary things in this industry. And so to take a shot at it, without really looking at what the other alternatives might be, is ill-conceived and short-sighted. You know, it's not just the fact people in other parts of the world don't have to pay as much because we fund innovation here. Everybody's going to lose as a result of this. Something that's missed in this discussion is the fact that over the last 20, 25 years, the drug spend has remained fairly constant as an overall spend of about 12 to 13%. percent, yeah. Give or take. Yeah, some, some studies say it's 14 to 15, but still, you're right. It's, it's in that ballpark between Absolutely. 10 and 15%, and it hasn't changed over 25, no. 30 years. You know, my father, we were just discussing, my father's right. you know, been having, had his knees replaced, um, both of them, and the bill was $300,000 for those knee replacements. Yeah. I mean, that seems yeah. to me two days in the hospital and, <laughs> you know, it yeah. seems like a lot of money for basically, you know, I mean, I'm sure it's well worth it and he's very happy, but no one complains about that because <laughs> the way the insurance is dealt with. Well, you know something, it's interesting you bring that up because I had a hip replacement last year. Okay. okay? Now, 
do you think I asked before I went into the hospital, how much is this going to cost? <laughs> no. I've got good insurance, you know, I've got a deductible, you know, it's like $1,000 or something, right? Pay my 1000 bucks, get my hip replacement. Didn't think twice about it, right? But just for kicks, I looked at the bill when it came from the hospital. It was $150,000. Yeah, exactly. And I thought to myself, are you kidding me? And they're going after us in the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah. Right? So, you know, the insurance companies carry that load for the, for the hospitals, you know, for the cost of surgery. I understand and completely sympathetic with the fact that out-of-pocket costs for, for prescription drugs for some people are just exorbitant. But, you know, my pushback on it is why is it that the insurance companies are willing to pay that kind of a markup on my hip, but they're not willing to, to, to carry it for prescription drugs yeah. right? or the pharmacy benefit managers for, for that? It, the pharmaceutical industry, you know, ranks lower than the tobacco industry in the favorability rating that people give it. And what's just devastating about that is that the people at tobacco companies know they go to work every day creating products that kill people and we're going to work every day creating products that save people and yet we're down there with them in in terms of our favorability rating because we've been we've been cast as being all about profit uh, and all about revenue and and yet i live in a world here in california where right up to the ceos of early stage biotech companies i see people who are very much dedicated to developing products that are gonna that are gonna help people. So we're an easy hit, easy to take a shot at us because the impression is out there that, that um, we're basically just about robbing people blind. And, and I think that could be easily taken care of by readjusting the economics and by the out-of-pocket costs being absorbed more by the PBMs and the and the insurance companies. But they're pretty good at fighting us on that. And look, you know, the other side of it is that um, whether we're talking about the White House right now or Republicans in Congress or Democrats in Congress, I've never seen a time where we don't have anybody to turn to because everybody's out to get us. Yeah. It's funny. If you go back and you read some of the studies from 2014, 2013, it was about improving U.S. innovation competitiveness. Yeah. And now all the studies are about, you know, marginalizing price and putting in price controls relative to what you have in Europe. It's a very 1970s sort of approach to rent control almost. Yeah, you know, I, uh, my former CEO, Jerry Calder, just passed away last week. And I was thinking about some of the things he used to say. He was from the Missouri Boot Hill. So he had some, you know, great country life experiences <laughs> and, and great sayings. But um, he used to say all the time, you know, a cynic is somebody who knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing. Yeah. Right, and I, and I think that's the kind of situation we're dealing with. Here. Is is it also the fact that the largest single site employer in California is UCLA Med Center? Is it just that the, you know, the fact is there's a political power there that's going to be very hard to disrupt? Yeah, well, I, th I think exactly. We're we're not together in this. Unfortunately, we're not as a unified healthcare delivery system and ecosystem. No, we're not. We're not together on this. Um, you know, hospitals face a challenge, obviously, in, in keeping beds filled. We want people not to be in beds. And, and so I, I learned that early on when I came to Biocom and sat down and thought, oh, I'm going to make friends with the people at the hospitals. And, <laughs> you know, the first lesson I learned was uh, that they're in business of keeping people in beds. So I'm not sure if you've seen it. We did a study with the Dutch government on CAR-T using a real-world evidence extraction where we looked at the comparative effectiveness of CAR-T to bone marrow transplants using a, a cohort out of the Vanderbilt University electronic health record database. 
What you see is there's an enormous disincentive within the bone marrow units to using CAR-T because it creates an enormous drop in the internal revenue in right. the regenerative units. It actually pulls about $200,000 of liquidity out of each procedure because just there's a, you know, basically you're taking that money and you're putting it in a drug as opposed to a very intensive procedure in a bone marrow transplant that takes a long time, obviously. Yeah. Yep. So there's an enormous disincentive to using CAR-T therapeutics, and thusly what you're finding is that they're only ending up in the most disease-burdened populations, the mm -hmm. one where bone marrow is no longer an option. How can we get around this? I don't think there's an overnight fix to getting around it. You know, I, I was in a meeting the other night with a bunch of our CEOs, and we were talking about cancer therapy. And uh, what we were focusing on was the fact that the incentive is to go with the standard regimen. That's what you're going to get paid for. That's what you're not going to get questioned about. That's what you're trained to do in medical school. And so you don't upset the apple cart with something new, regardless of how beneficial it could be. That I mean, that's why people are coming to places like uh, the Moore's Cancer Center here sure. at UCSD for, for treatment. My dad had prostate cancer and, and, and eventually passed away. When I tried to suggest to his oncologist that he try some of the novel technologies, uh, he said, no, you know, we've got him on a, on a regimen and that's what, that's what we're going to go with. I think it goes all the way back to, especially in an environment like this, exposing physicians to innovation and entrepreneurship and the, and, and the value of innovation and getting them sort of bought into that whole equation early on. It goes to creating places like the Moore's Cancer Center here where people can go for those more innovative types of, of technologies. And um, obviously, it's going to require a change in reimbursement uh, and, 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 you know, every level of the, of the healthcare system. So pulling out your crystal ball, there's been a tremendous amount of success here. It's been one of the main economic drivers of the state of California. Huge job growth, 100% job growth over the last 10 years in biotech research jobs, for example. Where do you see the sector in five years, and how do you think the pricing controls can impact that? Well, two things. Uh, personalized medicine is growing exponentially in terms of our development of genomics tools, uh, CAR-T technologies. You know, it's interesting when we look at the economics of drug delivery today and it's how it's beginning to change years ago, and it's even true today, we, we know that it's it's a hit or miss kind of an equation in prescribing drugs, right? Right. And, and you know, a lot of drugs only work in 50% of the population or, or, or less. So part of the cost that companies have to charge from an economic standpoint, is to absorb all, all of everything that, that that they have to do to you know to be able to find something that'll work in in, in some part of the population, that's going to change with with personalized medicine. Here in California, I see an opportunity that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, and that is in the merger of the technologies of life science and data management and high tech. Nobody has that anywhere else in the world. So we're seeing Google and Amazon, all of these companies that, that are IT companies, uh, data, data companies that are moving into healthcare and can access huge amounts of information. 23andMe right. is another one. A huge, huge amounts of inf information on populations and put that information to work. We've got the ability in, in California more so than anywhere else to develop the systems, the data systems, the hardware and the software 
to be able to put that information to work. And then we've got an incredible life science economy here that develops innovative products. So I think we're going to see more of a merger of those sectors here in the future. We've already seen it at Biocom. Uh, about a month ago, we did a dinner up in Palo Alto with a group of people from all of those sectors. The interesting thing about it, Dwayne, was um, they were hungry to get to know each other. Sure. Uh, and they were hungry to get to understand each other's technologies. What we found in the three hours, uh, it was only supposed to be a couple of hours, but I think it went three and a half hours. What we found is is that all of these different sectors wanted to put the tools to work that they were each developing, but they didn't really know too much about each other. And even up, up in the Bay Area, you know, where we've got Silicon Valley uh, and, and we've got South San Francisco, Silicon Valley more high-tech and South San Francisco more biotech, uh, what we found is that those two groups don't really have the opportunity to, to get to know each other. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that down the road. Marriage broker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think I'm just so optimistic and hopeful that when we bring them together, that we're just going to catapult ahead in our ability to develop products that are going to be more individualized and, uh, and, and you know, with less uncertainty around things like clinical trials and identifying patient populations. I, I think that's what's going to happen here in the next five years. That's great. Joe, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Thank you, Dwayne. I, I've really enjoyed the conversation. 